This is a sermon preached in the pulpit of Eden Grove Presbyterian Church, Bowen Hinch, Northern Ireland. A place where we believe that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. That the man or woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Brothers and sisters, we turn to the Word of God now this morning. Please open up your Bible there and we are in Acts chapter 4 as we work our way through the book of Acts in this brand new year. We're in Acts chapter 4 and verse 32 onwards and then we will move into chapter 5 for the first 11 verses. The church are together, they hold all things in common, but not everything is perfect. Let's read this passage, for it truly is the word of God. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they held everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as had any need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. And the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes. For so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. A great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Amen. And we thank God today for his precious word. 
As we come to worship today and as we sit at the feet of God's word and hear it preached, I want us to consider a little bit about the Church of Jesus Christ in this our day and age. Often in Northern Ireland, in towns and villages and cities all across this land, the church is in a relatively poor state. Everywhere you go, the church is hopelessly divided. There are eight, nine, ten, eleven more fellowships in every single town of all descriptions, all sorts of different denominations, and division just rings out from the people of God. Also, when we go to churches, they can often be places of much division. Fights and arguments and lies and slander abound. Anonymous posters are stuck up lamp posters and, and church gates. Emails are sent with no name attached. Often the church can seem a very bitter and petty and unforgiving place. Sometimes the church can absolutely depress us. Sometimes it can break our hearts and sometimes we all long for the day that we get to go to the perfect church. The church that's down the road, the church where all the people go to. If only I had the courage and the bravery to go to that church. Brothers and sisters, there is no perfect church. Not down the road, not up the road, and certainly not the church that you belong to. But today I want to preach from these chapters in Acts 4 and Acts 5. And I want us to fall in love again with the church of Jesus Christ. And to take her incredibly seriously. You see, although we have turned the church into a laughing stock at times in our communities, in the eyes of the Lord, the church of Jesus Christ is his beautiful bride. I know we often don't see that or think that or even act that way when we are part of it, but it is certainly true. As we have met the church in the book of Acts, we have witnessed what many see as the golden age of the church. Now it certainly wasn't that and we will see a little bit more of why it wasn't that later in this passage. But certainly when we come to the book of Acts we see a church that is growing. We see a church where the men and women are devoted to the apostles teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to the prayers. And here in Acts chapter 4 verse 32 onwards we see another little glimpse of a gloriously bright and shiny and beautiful church. In verse 32 we read that the number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. You can't imagine this fellowship arguing about the colour of the curtains. You can't imagine this fellowship being vacant of a pastor and a minister for years on end because they're arguing about which buildings are more important. This was a fellowship where the believers were of one heart and one soul. And that even spilled out into how they treated their own possessions. We read in verse 32 as it continues that no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now again, later on in this passage, we will see that this is not a call to Christian socialism, Christian communism, where we all live in a big barn in a field and we rear one another's children. But what is happening here is the practical outworking of the gospel reality. My brothers and sisters, let me remind you again of the gospel. The gospel is the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this good news says that Jesus Christ laid down his life 
for the sins of his bride, the church. The gospel tells us that this same Jesus who had laid down his life, crucified, dead and buried and placed in a tomb, well the good news says that the same Jesus rose again from the dead. Christ Jesus is alive. Here is the gospel. And it comes as the good news, as an antidote to the bad news. The bad news that says that the wages of sin is death, that in Adam all of us have sinned, that in Adam all of us have sinned and deserve the right judgment and punishment of God, that all of us deserve God's justice, which would see us lost into the place called hell. The gospel, the good news, is the antidote to that bad news, and the response to the gospel is to believe it. Many of us have believed the gospel. Many of us have turned away from our sins. We call that repentance. We know how filthy and odious they are before a holy God. And so we run from them and we seek forgiveness at the cross. We repent of our sins and we put our faith in Christ. And this is our response to the gospel. Friends, why do I labor a point that perhaps all of you are on board for? The bad news, the good news, and the response. Why do we underline it today? Because when we consider the church, we see the outcome of the gospel. We see men and women gathered together who have believed the gospel. Men and women who have looked on to Jesus and been saved. Men and women who have received Christ as he is offered in the gospel. We call it the ecclesia. The gathering, the fellowship, the church, whatever name your gathering gives to itself, that's what we call it. The gospel is preached. The spirit works. Many believe it and are saved and they are added to the number called the church. You see, whenever we treat the gathering of Jesus Christ, the ecclesia, the church, whenever we treat it with contempt, then we are treating Christ's bride with contempt. It should break our hearts when the church in our land in this day is divided. It should cause us to fall on our knees in prayer when we hear of the church fighting and arguing and splitting and dividing. It should cause us great pain when we hear of these things. Certainly not rubbing our hands together with glee, but brokenhearted because the people of God are divided. These men and women, this church in Acts 4, were together with one heart and one soul. Even their possessions weren't seen as belonging exclusively to me, but they were shared among the church, the fellowship. They had everything in common. And with great power, verse 33 The apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and great grace was upon them all. The word of God was preached. The apostles, this foundational office, they were active in the church in these days. They were sharing their experience of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They had been witnesses to the resurrection And as they did this and as the word was preached and as the testimony of the resurrection of Christ was proclaimed, there was great grace upon them all. Grace, the unmerited favour of God upon those who deserve his wrath. There was great grace upon the church of Jesus Christ. 
And as this worked itself out, the practical outcome of that in verse 34 was that there was not a needy person among them. For there were those who owned lands or houses and they sold them and they brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was the apostles, verse 35, who distributed it out to anyone who had any need. Here is the church of Jesus Christ. And in verse 36, we meet a specific member of it, someone called Joseph. But he was also called, boys and girls, by the apostles, Barnabas. And Barnabas means, boys and girls, Kitty McWinkle's son of encouragement. And what a name for such a man, because he was a Levite. He was from somewhere called Cyprus, a little island in the Mediterranean. And this son of encouragement, this Joseph, this Barnabas, he sold a field that belonged to him and he brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. Extraordinary scenes and extraordinary days that a house could have been built on that field like many of us like to do out in the countryside here, but instead the field was sold and the proceeds was given to the apostles to distribute to the local church. Brothers and sisters, grace was abounding in this fellowship. The church, not divided and broken and fighting over trivial matters, but the church with one heart and soul, not ignoring him over there because I don't like him, not treating her over there with contempt because she did something that I don't like, but the church together with one heart and one soul having everything in common and the spirit of grace and the spirit of encouragement abounded within the walls of the local church. See, we should never ever treat the fellowship with contempt. It is a great sadness when I sense that we see the church as far down the list of priorities. There are many other organisations and groups that, that capture our attention. We will never miss our exercise class, but the church is optional. We will never miss our traditional walks in the middle of July, but the church is optional. We will never miss standing up for the Ulster men, but the church is optional. The fellowship of the church of Jesus Christ, where we say we belong, often is demeaned and relegated and seen as an optional extra in life, but not in this passage, not in the word of God. My brothers and sisters, I urge you to remember who the church is. It is full of the called out people of God taken from this sinful world, men and women who have received the gospel and believed it and been added to the number of the church. We see the church in Ephesians chapter 2. And in that letter, Paul speaks of how once upon a time, Jew and Gentile were divided. There was a dividing wall of hostility, but it was Christ Jesus who came and tore that wall down and he has brought together unity in the body. Jew and Gentile, saved by the gospel of grace that has been preached from the very beginning, all part of the one church. And the foundations, according to Paul in Ephesians 2, of that church are the prophets, the apostles, with Christ himself as the cornerstone. Now, if we were part of such a body, if we were part of such a fellowship, where the prophets and the apostles formed our foundations, but, but Jesus himself was the cornerstone. Isn't such a body worth our attention? 
Isn't such a body worth all of our attention? Doesn't such a body climb to the top of the list of our priorities? Doesn't such a body make all of those other little groups and things that we're involved in seem insignificant? This passage shows us that in the days after Pentecost, the church was extraordinarily beautiful. All these men and women from different arts and parts, disparate groups from here, there and everywhere, converted Jews, converted Gentiles, men and women, children, young, old alike, rich and poor alike, all of them were brought together and they worshipped every day and took their place as part of the church of Jesus Christ. Paul speaks about it in Ephesians 2. And Paul speaks about it in Romans 11 and he describes the church in that passage as the one olive tree. There are not two olive trees. There's not a Jewish church and then another olive tree which is the Gentile church. No, Paul only speaks in Romans 11 about the one olive tree. Branches, wild branches grafted on and others broken off. But the one olive tree, the church of Jesus Christ. From Genesis to Revelation to this very day, the bride of Jesus. If this is true, as it surely is, then may we realize that our fellowship is of more worth than silver and of gold. These men and women of faith realized exactly that. The gospel that had saved them played out in, it, in their lives by, by taking possessions, by taking material things, things that could not last, things that they could not keep, they could not hold on to it. The gospel played out by taking this and selling this and distributing it to those within the church who had any need. Brothers and sisters, do you see the priorities of these men and women? They were there for the church. No longer half-hearted, no longer doing bits and pieces now and again whenever they could be bothered, but they, they realized the significance of the body that they were part of. Christ Jesus died for the church. My friends, consider that. There will be a time soon that all of this, I'm thankful to say, will be over. A day that we will put away our cameras. A day that we will no longer have to worry about the, the shine of baldy preaching heads. And a day will come when we will return and see each other face to face, eye to eye. We will be able to meet together again, not neglecting it as some are in the habit of doing. Coming together once more to be the church. How will we come? What will our attitude, attitude be when that day arrives? May Eden Grove and your church, wherever it may be, be of people with one heart and soul. Men and women who realise the significance and the beauty of the bride of Jesus Christ in the towns and villages and cities all across this world. Men and women who realise that their place in the church was bought and paid for by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Is anything more glorious? But as we read this passage and consider our attitude 
to the church and how she is worth more than any of the stuff with which we clutter our lives and fill our garages. I want us to realise that the church on earth has always known trouble. As I've already said today, sometimes we look back into the book of Acts in particular and think, well, there was the golden age of the church. If only we could be that church again. If only we could have another Pentecost. And remember, I told you a few weeks ago, we can't. Pentecost was a one-off event, just like the cross was once and for all. But we read Acts and we say, if only. If only we could be like that. My friends, here is the reality. We are like this. Because when the church gathers, the church will know difficulty. And not everybody was like Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. There were some, like a husband and wife, who sought to lie to God himself. The husband and wife, boys and girls, in this passage are called Ananias and Sapphira. Husband and wife. Chapter 5, verse 1, we meet them and they sold a piece of property. So far, so good, we might say, because other people have done this. We know that Barnabas, son of encouragement, he has sold a field that belonged to him and he's brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So we immediately meet this husband and wife and we think, happy days. Here are more individuals who are absolutely sold out to the cause of Christ. The reality of the gospel in their lives has, has flowed out of them in grace and generosity and they sell a piece of property. Nothing wrong here so far. And yet we read in verse 2 about these church members showing us again that there has never been a golden age of the church of Jesus Christ. Because we read that with his wife's knowledge, Ananias kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it to the apostles' feet. Now again, reading that, we may immediately think, well, again, Scott, nothing wrong here. And indeed, later, when, when Peter challenges Ananias, Peter says exactly that. He says in verse 4, Why this uh, property remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? So in other words, Ananias, no one has forced you to do this. No one has demanded that you sell this piece of property. No one has stamped their feet and said, you must do this and you must give every penny to the church. We see here that it was okay for Christians to have private property. And we see here that it was okay for Christians to sell a field and perhaps bring 50% of the proceeds to the apostles. Those things were fine. But Ananias hadn't done that. As we read these verses, we realize that Ananias decided in his own sinful heart with his wife's knowledge that, that despite boasting that all of the proceeds from this sale of this property was going to the church, he decided to hold some back for himself. He lied to the apostles. And by extension, therefore, he had lied to God himself. Peter says in verse 3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Later on at the end of verse 4, Peter again says, Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, 
But to God, Ananias was a liar. Ananias didn't have to go this route, but he did. Sinfully, he came to a place where he looked the apostles in the eye and told them blatant untruths. We should not be surprised when the church goes through times of difficulty. And we should not be surprised that when we are in the church, we see men and women who we have long believed to be Christians, long believed to be on the same side as ourselves, and yet at some point they go completely the other way. We should not be surprised. Ananias and his wife, despite their boasts, came with not the whole proceeds from the sale of this property, but only some. And we don't know the facts and figures. We don't know the money in question here. We don't know the size and the scale of the gift that was given and the gift that should have been given. But there are important things in here for us to see as we consider how we are as the church of Jesus Christ. Peter says to Ananias in verse 3, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And that's interesting, isn't it? Because we look at Ananias and Sapphira and we see their sin. But Peter is very clear that the enemy is at work here. That the enemy is at work in the local church. That the enemy takes an interest in the local church. It should not surprise us. Friends, when the church is divided, and when she fights, and when she knows difficulty... Sinful humanity is at work, but often in the background, leading and guiding and directing, there is the enemy of the bride. Satan is his name, and he is a liar and the father of lies. He is a murderer from the beginning. And he is bound today, but he rages against the church, for he knows his time is short. We see it here. And even in this day of good generosity and, and graceful living and brothers and sisters living with one heart and soul, Satan still in the background is at work pulling strings and twisting people and, and pushing them in one direction and causing them to lie. We should not be surprised that these things take place in the local church. Satan has an interest in silencing the gospel and Satan has a devious interest in the well-being of the local church. When we split and divide, often we smell the sulfur in the wind as the enemy, the devil, is at work. Ananias, perhaps unwittingly, had his heart filled with greed by Satan and it led him to a place where he had lied to the Holy Spirit. As we read this, we see the simple and plain truth that I think we all know and believe and shouldn't need repeating, but I will anyway, that the Holy Spirit is God. It is the false religion of the Jehovah's Witnesses who claim that the Holy Spirit is God's active force. But as Christians, we do not believe that. We are Trinitarians. We believe that there is one God, three persons, and they are all equal. There is the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit and they are all equal in power and authority and majesty and glory and might. And so Peter's language here isn't surprising. Satan has been involved here but Ananias, even worse than that, has lied to God himself. He has lied to the Holy Spirit. And friends, we should not take this verse 
and just pass quickly by it. Understand that the church, as the bride of Christ, is despised and hated in this world. Understand that at times it will be a war zone as the enemy and sinful humanity seek to silence the gospel. And understand for yourself that when you oppose the local church, you oppose the Lord himself. There is no room in our fellowships for lies. No room in our fellowships for slander and for gossip. There's no room in our fellowships to treat the church as if it is a playground. Where anything go, no room in our fellowships to look at the congregation and say, I'm never going to have anything to do with her. No room in our fellowships for the way of the world and the sinful practices and the sinful devices that the enemy delights in. There is no room for it. And my friends, as we meditate on these verses, may we see how serious the Lord takes his church. See, Ananias had lied. He may have thought that it was a little white lie. He may have thought he was only spoofing to the apostles. But in league with the enemy, he had lied to God the Holy Spirit. And the outcome of that is utterly tragic and fear-inducing. We read in verse 5, that when Ananias had heard Peter's words, he fell down and breathed his last. Verse 6, the young men rose, they wrapped him up and carried him out and they buried him. And many have looked at this and tried to somehow make it a little bit more palatable. Put a little bow on it, try and sparkle it up a little bit. But the reality is, my brothers and sisters, we see God's judgment upon Ananias. He lies to the Holy Spirit and immediately, as soon as he hears those words, his one more breath comes and he is dead. He goes to eternity. Friends, we don't see days as dramatic as this. But we should not be surprised when God turns his angry and just face to those who oppose his church. We should not be surprised when we see God pouring out his wrath upon those who seek to damage and destroy his bride, the church. Ananias, thinking that he would sneakily keep a little bit of the proceeds to himself, well, soon. Soon comes the judgment. Sapphira, his wife, does not escape. Three hours later, she comes in. She doesn't know what has happened. Verse 7. And Peter speaks to her with an opportunity to come clean. An opportunity to tell the truth. And Peter says, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. That's true. Let's just say it was a thousand pounds. That's what my husband said. That's what we sold it for. Yes, it's true. But it is a lie. Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And verse 10 comes and says, She dies as well. She falls, breathes her last. The young men take her and they bury her beside 
her husband. And here to this very day, the names in front of us of Ananias and Sapphira, his wife, they stand as a sure warning to those who would seek to do the work of the enemy in the local church. Brothers and sisters, again, I ask you, how will you return to the church? I have been clear that the bride of Christ is not perfect. We will have days of trouble and difficulty and days where we will agree and disagree. At times, the enemy will have a field day in our fellowships. At times, he will stir up opposition to the gospel. We will lie and we will think nothing of it just so we can look okay. We will gossip and slander and think nothing of it because after all, it's just a church. But here, as the Lord works, and as the men and women of faith see the reality of lying to the Holy Spirit and treating the church with contempt, we read that great fear came upon them, verse 11, and upon all who heard of these things. I know I am guilty of this. Sometimes in the everyday humdrum of life, Sunday comes, the gathering arrives we we go to church and I know sometimes I have gone and I could have seen it far enough I know sometimes I have climbed into the pulpit and I haven't been prepared I haven't been ready maybe the words are on the page but have I prayed have I considered the Lord enough that week have I read his word have I come in his strength or have I arrived just to go through the motion my brothers and sisters, the church of Jesus Christ is not for a joke in this earth. It is not to annoy you. It is not here to cause you to roll your eyebrows until something better comes along. The church of Jesus Christ is on this earth as a witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. A surefire evidence that Christ died for sinners and he has called them and gathered them in by the gospel and by the spirit and by repentance and faith. The Lord has gathered them in and he has bashed down the wall of hostility and he has saved men and women of all colours and creeds and languages. And he has put his stamp upon them and declared them to be his own. That's the church. And wouldn't it be a joy if absence made our heart towards the church grow fonder. The next time we come, I pray indeed that we will gather with one heart and soul. The next time we come, I pray indeed that we will gather putting the needs of the fellowship before our own. The next time we come, I pray that we will understand that the enemy is like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And we will bar the gates and the windows and the doors to the enemy who seeks to destroy. And when we come, may we gather with reverence and awe. May the fear of the Lord be upon us. 
not a servile fear that a servant will have for his or her master, but a filial fear that a child will have for their parent. May we gather with such fear, understanding that with one click, the Lord could demand our lives from us. May we understand that the Lord is fierce against the enemies of his church. May we come with reverence, awe, and the fear of God. And by his grace, the world will take notice once more in this land of the church of Jesus Christ. No longer an irrelevance, no longer a divided body that fights and argues over stupid things, but the body of Christ on this earth, the body for whom Jesus died. A place where every week when we gather, we understand that Jesus is in the midst.